What's up, guys? Welcome to This Business. This is the show where we take a traditional sports talk approach to covering the sport that we all love, professional wrestling. I'm your host. My name is John Sargent. Thank you very much for being here with me. All right. It is 11 p.m. Austin, Texas, USA time. AEW Revolution has just ended. It was a long one, but a good one. I'm going to review it for you. I'm going to stay up late, and I'm going to review it for each and every one of you people. That's my WWE talk impression. I'm also going to give you guys my bottom five WrestleMania musical performances. Next week, we'll do the top five, so stick around for that. Before we get into those two things, though, there's some big news that's been going on for the last uh, week plus, and I, and I wanted to talk about it. Don't worry, baby birds, I'm going to feed you. We're going we're gonna to review that Revolution pay-per-view. But before we get into that, I want to talk about this. In 2012, George Lucas, stick with me, you guys know I'm always on topic, George Lucas shockingly sold Star Wars, the rights to Star Wars, to Disney. Most Star Wars fans at the time were skeptical, thinking Disney would ruin the thing they love, while others were more optimistic, thinking that Disney had the means to take Star Wars to even greater heights. Since then, I think it's fair to say Disney has had an inconsistent hit rate with new Star Wars movies and TV shows. In the early going, I don't believe Disney really understood what they had on their on their hands. They don't they didn't know the the nuances of what the outspoken fan base wanted. Over the years since 2012, some of Disney's Star Wars projects have been absolutely amazing like The Mandalorian and some are Solo, the new trilogy and Boba Fett. Some of the creations are great, others aren't. Sometimes it seems like they know exactly what the fans want. Sometimes it seems like they're clueless. But the effort is always there. New Star Wars content and merchandise has been through the roof since Disney purchased the rights to it. They've even dedicated an entire section of Disneyland to Star Wars. They may not hit the mark 100% of the time, but nobody can say Disney hasn't has treated Star Wars like a second concern. We may not always get what we wanted, but Disney has always at least tried to give us what they thought we wanted with Star Wars, and I can appreciate that. In 2001, Vince McMahon bought WCW. You can see where this is headed. Over the course of the next 20 years, WWE had a nonsensical WCW quote, invasion angle, consistently booked WCW stars and legends like DDP and Booker T and Scott Steiner to be seen as inferior to their WWF WWE guys. They produced multiple documentaries like The Rise and Fall of WCW and The Monday Night Wars that were revisionist history at best and were transparent propaganda created by the victors. Hell, at WrestleMania 31, 15 years later, Triple H with his DX buddies beat Sting and his NWO buddies 
yet another unnecessary shot at WCW. Aside from some good action figures, WWE has pissed on the memory of WCW at every opportunity for two whole decades because Vince McMahon views his purchase of WCW as a victory in war against Ted Turner rather than an opportunity to honor a promotion beloved by a massive amount of the fan base. Imagine if he had treated WCW like Disney treated Star Wars. Imagine if he really did listen to the fans like he lied about on Pat McAfee's show. WCW could have been an alternative show under the WWE umbrella. NXT could have been a WCW show. Starcade and Super Brawl could be special premium live events. WCW versus WWE could be featured in the 2K video games. Raw could be Nitro once a year to pop a rating the same way that they do with Retro Raw. Sadly, none of that is likely to happen because Vince himself has absolutely no reverence for the properties he purchases, nor the fans who adore them. In 2022, AEW owner Tony Khan purchased Ring of Honor. You can see where this is going. Now, it shouldn't need to be stated, but obviously Tony Khan's purchase of Ring of Honor cannot be compared to Star Wars or WCW from a shockwave point of view, but I'm not here to compare the size of the letters on the news headline. What I want to talk about is what Tony Khan might do with Ring of Honor, what Tony Khan could do with Ring of Honor, and what I would like to see Tony Khan do with Ring of Honor. First of all, unlike Disney, Tony Khan knows exactly what ROH is, what has historically been great about it, and what the fans have loved about Ring of Honor. Before being the billionaire owner of AEW, Tony Khan was a billionaire fan in attendance at ROH shows and on ROH message boards. He was a tape trader. Tony, like many of us, turned to Ring of Honor when there was no WCW or ECW and WWE had begun its creative downward spiral. He has reverence for ROH and its history of amazing stories and matches. I think it's safe to say we can all rest assured that whatever he decides to do with the library, that it will be in line with the tone and direction that made Ring of Honor great in the first place. I have to imagine there is some sort of streaming deal with HBO in the pipeline, and 20 years of Ring of Honor content is the perfect sort of thing to help get that deal made. As well as something that would delight fans, I know I would lose a lot of time to HBO if that library was at my fingertips. What definitely will not happen is documentaries about ROH and how it was only okay, but AEW was better, and that's why AEW won. You will not see Samoa Joe return just so that Kenny Omega can run circles around him on a pay-per-view. You won't see Adam Page and Dark Order being beaten by Brian Daniel. Wait, you get the point. Ring of Honor's history will be treated with admiration and respect because not only does Tony Khan obviously love the rich history of Ring of Honor specifically, but he is now the official key master for all professional wrestling history. Unfortunately, Vince got a 40-year head start on building his museum, 
But Tony Khan will still have a more respectful treatment of the pieces that he does manage to acquire and display in his. As far as what I would like to see happen with Ring of Honor going forward, similarly to Disney with Star Wars, I think Khan bought this new toy because he really intends to play with it. Only now it'll have greater financial backing than it had before. I have all the faith in the world that TK will treat Ring of Honor like Disney has treated Star Wars and it will become a more played with toy than it ever has been before. What specifically do I think he should do with it? Remember a while back on the podcast, I talked about AEW being truly elite. I said they should sign every single elite wrestler that becomes available. I said the roster should be genuinely elite from top to bottom. I said they should allow the contracts of anyone simply really good or less to expire. I said they should be all elite wrestling where very good is not good enough. That all sounded overly ambitious at the time, but now it actually seems like a likely scenario. Except now those contracts don't have to expire. All of these average good and really good talents who aren't quite elite at anything yet or anymore in a lot of cases can live in Ring of Honor. ROH now, with the resources to be more widely seen, can remain the home for the good and very good and still be the breeding ground for the elite performers. Except now, when those elite performers leave the nest, they will theoretically all fly to AEW. This can work in the way that NXT was intended to work and would have worked if the wrestlers were not falling off of the end of the conveyor belt at Raw and SmackDown after Triple H souped them up, put in a new motor and suspension in NXT, and then pass them down the line to Vince for paint. What I would do is I would have William Regal, who just debuted in AEW at the, at Revolution, Samoa Joe, and honestly, Triple H on the phone right now for coaching and on-screen roles. Regal, Regal and Joe are obviously no-brainers, and I know you guys think I'm nuts for thinking Triple H is going to jump, but I have a gut feeling about it. Imagine if AEW and its developmental territory and its producers and coaches all had the same game plan. The coaches were free to do their jobs. The left and right hand knew what one another was doing. It's crazy, I know, but just crazy enough to work. We, the fans, would feel comfortable allowing ourselves to invest in the young talent because they would see their potential fulfilled with regularity. Wrap all of that up in the look and vibe of classic ROH, and you've got the perfect version of Ring of Honor going forward. It honors pro wrestling's past, as ROH has always done, and it builds the wrestling stars of the future, just as ROH has always done. That's what I would like to see happen, and at this stage, it's just me waxing lyrical and fantasy booking, Obviously, nobody knows what's going to happen with Ring of Honor, but I can tell you what won't happen. Tony Khan is not going to mothball Ring of Honor for 20 years, only bringing out occasionally to blissfully urinate on it like Vince does with my beloved World Championship Wrestling. 
So at the very least, Ring of Honor will be treated respectfully, and that should be good enough. All right, let's run through this AEW Revolution pay-per-view. It Overall, I liked this show a lot. We'll get to that when I get to the end, but I do need to say that it has got some timing issues. Four hours is only feels like four hours if it feels like four hours, if that makes any sense. And this show... I don't, man, I don't know. I don't know if it was the show, the wrestlers, the pacing, uh, too much of similar stuff, or the crowd. I am going to be hammering this crowd, the Orlando crowd. Mm. All right, we started things off with the buy-in. To be honest with you, the Layla Hirsch versus Chris Statlander match that kicked things off, I wasn't watching. I wasn't paying attention. Why was I not paying attention? I was trying to figure out the Bleacher Report app on my PS4. Wasn't working. I was re-downloading it on to my iPad. I watched this on my iPad. AEW, please get a different service for people to watch this thing. If you don't have an Apple TV or whatever it is that you need to Chromecast or whatever, you end up watching it on a tiny-ass iPad. PlayStation doesn't have the app. It's bad news. Get it on a different app. So I couldn't tell you what happened in that Layla Hirsch and Chris Statlander match in the buy-in. After that, you had a Don Callis promo. And Excalibur had the line of the night when he said, It's Kenny Omega. God damn it. That was really funny. Up next, we had QT Marshall versus Hook. Hook wins a two-and-a-half-star match. Didn't really need to have a high star rating. Mission accomplished. Hook had his longest, most intricate match. Looked like a badass. After that, on the buy-in, we had the House of Black versus Death Triangle. Epic entrance for House of Black. Uh, Triangle with Alex Abrahentes looks like the Dungeon of Doom from the 90s. I want more Brody King versus Redbeard in my life. Penta absolutely rules. And it finished the way you would think it would finish with mist in the eyes. House of Black wins. Three stars, just barely above average. Moving on to the main card. The main card proper started off with Chris Jericho versus Eddie Kingston. This was a gritty, grimy, brutal all Japan wrestling love letter. Uh, they were working head stuff and eye stuff. Um, Chris Jericho continued his rivalry with Aubrey Head, Aubrey Edwards. Guys, it's like 1130 at night. Uh, Jericho kicks out of a back fist uh, somewhat early on. Um, later on, he takes two more back fists. Eddie Kingston wins with a stretch plum submission of Chris Jericho. This match is going to get four stars from me. Um, it was a clinic in selling and a clinic in no selling. Jericho is a pro's pro for putting over Kingston with a submission. Uh, he is doing his job in the role that he has, and you guys need to start considering him for the singular best to ever do this job. After that, 
We had the Young Bucks versus Red Dragon versus Jurassic Express uh, in a three-way tag match. I am not even going to attempt to give you the blow-by-blow as tends to happen in these Young Bucks multi-man matches. I can tell you that this was Pop Rocks, Cocaine, Candy Rush, um, Sugar High with the precision of a Swiss watch. Jurassic Express holds on to win. This was four and three quarters stars. This was a hell of a match. Personally, I don't like the three-way dynamic ever, but it can win me over occasionally, and this is one of those instances. After that, we had the big, crazy ladder match for the face of the revolution with Hobbs, Wardlow, Starks, Keith Lee, Christian, and Orange Cassidy. Again, so much happened here. I can tell you this. It was a great display of everyone's personality. It was a great display of everyone's skill set. It was a good display of bigs versus smalls. Bigs working with bigs. Smalls working with smalls. In the end, Wardlow was the biggest dog in the yard. Um, It was a great showcase for him. He ended up winning the match. Three and three-quarter stars for this big, crazy ladder match. After that, we had Shane Swerve Strickland signing his contract on TV, and he is already super, super over. Up next, we had Jade Cargill versus Tay Conti for the TBS Championship. Uh, Jade came out looking like Jade from Mortal Kombat, which was really cool. She even had the guy who plays the guitar, uh, Kingfish Ingram, was playing live for her entrance, so that was pretty cool. Um, This match showed off each of these women's lack of experience. Um, It showed that they don't really have a lot of chemistry against one another. I've seen worse matches, but I've also seen better matches. I'm going to give it a 2.75. Jade obviously was the winner in that one. Up next, CM Punk versus MJF. Now, before I start getting into the match... This is where I turned on the crowd. These people were sitting on their hands and I was giving them the benefit of the doubt at first, thinking that it was just more of a uh, gruesome shock silence that they were giving this match. But I realized later on in the show, these people just weren't making any noise for MJF and CM Punk who is dressed like his Ring of Honor persona, beating the ever-living piss out of each other with a chain. I mean, this was this was bloody. Like, really, really bloody. At one point, Max grabs a microphone and he tells CM Punk to, to quit on everyone. CM Punk says, eat shit. Uh, JR called Max a disingenuous dick. That was pretty funny. Um, they're working over every body part at, at one point, the thumbtacks come into play. I mean, it's already a chain match and the thumbtacks come into play and the crowd does not react. Um, everybody goes into the tax. Everyone's going into the tax. Eventually MJF realizes he cannot win this on his own. And he calls out Wardlow screaming for Wardlow. Wardlow comes out, he asks him for the ring, and Wardlow just can't seem to find the dang ring. Uh, MJF gets planted uh, with a 
go to sleep into the tax, and now Wardlow has found the ring, places it on the mat for CM Punk to use. CM Punk bashes him in the head, pins him for the one, two, three. The end of MJF and Wardlow has taken place. The end of CM Punk and MJF has taken place. And the crowd was pretty silent about this. Um, This match was three and three quarter stars, but it wasn't about the star rating. It was about the story. They nailed it. It was a plus in that department. The crowd really took away from the watching experience for this one. Unfortunately, after that, we had Thunder Rosa and Britt Baker. This one was disappointing. Um, Thunder Rosa had some really badass gear. There is a new women's championship. It's already one of my favorite championships that exists today. The crowd is even more flat. Now it's a little understandable considering what they just saw with the bloodbath chain match, but they gave these women absolutely nothing. Now, is that on AEW for booking them right after that match? That's a, that's an honest question. This match was just like a video game match. And I don't mean that in the sense that it was like impressive. I mean it in the sense that it was just sort of moves happening for no real reason. Just just happening. Um, Thunder Rosa kicked out of a bunch of curb stomps. Eventually she could not overcome uh, the other players, Rebel and Jamie Hayter and all of the interference. Uh, And she gets uh, curb stomped into the belt and um, Britt Baker ends up stealing it, wins uh, two two and three quarter stars. Not, Not a very good match. After that, we had John Moxley versus Brian Danielson. Man, this thing was violence. Um, there was a really, really gruesome, violent feeling out process. They had a whole back and forth of just technical violence with striking and submission attempts. Um, eventually, they go to the outside. They start doing the hockey fight. They knock each other down, and there's this really contrived... The camera cuts to a scenery shot showing the crowd and the ring and the and the ramp and then it goes back to the to the guys and they stand up and they're both bleeding. Obviously they were gigging while no one was looking. Um, so they're both bleeding, they're bleeding together like the story dictated. They start hitting each other with everything. Uh, Danielson gets Moxley in the in the trap, starts giving him just the grossest elbows and puts him in a bloody dragon sleeper. The crowd even was silent for that. He gets a label lock on Moxley. No reaction from the crowd at all. Um, Moxley gets the bulldog on Danielson, who survives it. Uh, Mox kicks out of the Busaiku knee. There's a triangle, but Mox rolls over the triangle and gets the controversial pin on Danielson. Danielson doesn't like the the ruling from the referee and the two start going at it again. They're hockey fighting again. And here comes William Regal who comes down and slaps the piss out of Moxley who that gets his attention. Then he goes over and slaps Danielson that gets his attention. He forces them to shake hands. And so they come together because William Regal told them to. 
Moxley wins in somewhat controversial fashion. I'm giving this five stars. This is a great match, aside from the fact that the fans slept through it. Screw you, Orlando. But William Regal getting added at the end, if you go from beginning to end of this segment, five stars. Then you had the Trios Tornado match with the AHFO, who I cannot stand. But guess what? Every time they're in one of these things, they're kind of awesome. Against Sting, Darby Allen, and Sammy. This thing was all over the place. Jose got taken out with a trash can early on. Uh, Sting was doing rad Sting stuff. Mark Quinn gets involved. Butcher and Blade show up. At one point, Sammy Guevara hits a Spanish fly on somebody. Uh, from the top of the entrance through a couple of tables and then Sting in the most contrived spot I've ever seen in my life hits a dive through three stacks of tables on Andrade and Sting absolutely broke two tables with his own face. Uh, Darby Allen and Matt Hardy fight back into the ring. Yada, yada, yada. Darby Allen hits Matt Hardy with the coffin drop. Thankfully, this thing's over before somebody has to go to the hospital. The goodies win. I'm going to give it four stars as far as these hardcore, nonsense, crazy, you know, sugar-high brawls go. Um, this was a good time. And then in the main event, Adam Cole and Adam Page tried to kill one another. Now, I have been banging on about Orlando and how quiet Orlando was and how Orlando was sitting on their hands and how Orlando wasn't making any noise. And then this match happened... And these people came alive. Why, you say? Oh, well, because it's the AEW Championship. No, no. Oh, well, because it's the main event. No, no. Oh, well, because these guys are huge stars. No, no. These ding-dongs in Orlando came alive because both guys are named Adam. They were chanting, let's go, Adam. Adam sucks. They were chanting nonstop Adam stuff through this entire match never ever book another match in orlando again please anywho adam cole comes out wearing halo spartan armor which was pretty rad they start off brawling on the outside um hangman's arm gets hurt at one point um then they start the bomb fest this thing was nothing but Precision shots to the face with full force for what felt like half an hour. I mean, uh, uh, Cole goes off the middle rope, catches a huge big boot right in the face. Um, he takes an apron power bomb. It is just bomb after bomb after bomb after bomb. Uh, at one point, Hangman goes for a moonsault off the middle rope and Adam Cole does his patented super kick in midair and buddy, he connected. They go back to trading bomb after bomb. Uh, Hangman hits a fall away moonsault from the top rope. Nothing. They're kicking out of everything. Kick out, kick out, kick out, kick out. Red Dragon comes down um, and uh, they're, they're getting inter interference. They're getting involved. There's a Panama sunrise on the floor that made one of the grossest noises I have ever heard in my life. Back inside, Cole hits a low blow. He hits the Panama and he hits the boom. But Hangman kicks out of that, which is a little indulgent, in my opinion. Um, there is just dozens of super kicks following this. They are just kicking each other in the face, full force, nonstop. 
Uh, the Red Dragon sets up a table, but it backfires when Hangman puts Cole through it with a dead eye. Dark Order come in to stop the shenanigans and chase off Red Dragon. Um, oh, you get a buckshot, and Adam Cole just barely gets his fingers on the rope. Hangman takes off his belt and ties Adam Cole to the ropes and just starts teeing off with kicks to the head, kicks to the head, kicks to the head until Adam Cole fires back with, guess what? You guessed right, a kick to the head. Uh, and then you get your your boom and your buckshot from Hangman. Hangman wins. I'm going to give this four and three quarters. It, it almost reached that five-star status for me, but... It was just a little too indulgent. I mean, if this were a shoot fight, these guys would never be able to speak again. They would never be able to walk again. Just that level of kicks to the head is just hard for me to suspend my disbelief. But I got to commend the effort, the story that they told. It was almost a five-star match. Just a little bit unrealistic for me. Match of the night goes to Moxley versus Danielson. Other than Orlando being a god-awful crowd, this was a five-star endeavor. All right, guys, get at me at this biz show. I want to know what you thought of AEW's Revolution pay-per-view. It is WrestleMania season, so we're going to talk about some WrestleMania stuff. Right now, what I want to do is go over the five worst WrestleMania musical performances. Now, you guys know me. You know I love So Bad It's Good, and that's what we're talking about right here. So I'm going to go in order of least worst to most worst. You feel me? So, coming in at number five, WWE's favorite band, Limp Biscuit, at WrestleMania 19, played a song called Crack Addict, which was the theme song of the show. <laughs> it's not that bad of a song, honestly, considering the time period and Limp Biscuit, and if you uh, adjust for inflation. Um, but Crack Addict? Really? Nobody nobody said no on that? Like, maybe let's not do Crack Addict on WrestleMania 19? Coming in at number four. Man, WWE loves their new metal. Uh, you got Drowning Pool, who, I mean, is there is there a more one-hit wonderier, one-hit wonder than Drown Pool? Drowning Pool? Well, they played a different song than the one that they're a hit for. They played the song called Tear Away, which was, again, the theme for that show. And that song is, it's all right, but it is weird and depressing and sad. Uh, and they played it live and the crowd just died because of it. Uh, and they're just not that good of a live band either. Um, not, not, not great stuff from Drowning Pool. Coming in at number three, from WrestleMania 19 again, P.O.D. playing Rey Mysterio's theme, except they s decided to do like a Carnival Cruise reggae version of new metal uh, 
Latin music, it just is so bad and so weird. Uh, P.O.D., not exactly a legendary band to begin with. Rey Mysterio's entrance music is a wrestler's entrance music, not a radio-played song. And then they changed it to a Carnival Cruise reggae version. Strange, weird, bad, um, and I love it. (laughs) At number two, you knew he was going to be on the list eventually. It was only a matter of time. Kid Rock from WrestleMania 25 playing Ball with the Ball and... Rock and Roll Jesus. Uh, the story goes that the tag team championships were pushed to the pre-show to make room for one kid rock. He is a bad artist. These are bad songs. He went over time to the point where wrestlers just started making their entrances at the end of the performance. If you're so inclined, go check out the video for this because it, there's several moments where he goes to do the crowd participation and he falls back and then it's just dead silence. No crowd participation at all. It's really funny. Coming in at number one, co-holders for the worst WrestleMania musical performance ever from WrestleMania 28. Playing the rock to the ring, Flo Rida and playing John Cena to the ring, MGK. Okay, Flo Rida was a moment in time whose hits will be lost to time because they were no good to begin with. Uh, in the video that I watched when asked about Flo Rida, The Rock described him as having a marketable look. Then MGK plays John Cena out for the match, uh, and he is not as good of a rapper as John Cena is. He's got a woman whose name I don't know singing the chorus of the song. She's a much better musician than he is. And then at one point, he calls The Rock the world's biggest ego and says that John Cena is the ultimate underdog. All right, guys, that is my worst WrestleMania performances. Get at me at this biz show and let me know what yours are. We always wrap things up with the recommendation of the week, and this week is no different. Well, first of all, my recommendation to Tony Khan and AEW is to never run another pay-per-view in Orlando. But my real recommendation of the week, also concerning AEW and what they ought not do, is the way that we buy and sell tickets nowadays. So I have purchased tickets to my third ever AEW show. I will be attending Double or Nothing in Las Vegas on May 29th. If you're in town, come say what's up to your boy. However, what I did was I found a pre-sale code. I got onto the website early. I hit the button to get into the pre-sale. The pre-sale code did not work because there were multiple avenues on the app for which to travel. There was the AEW presale. There was the Axis presale. There was the whole package for the weekend presale. And evidently I chose the wrong one. So I ended up getting far worse tickets because of the way that this all happens rather than just everybody being in one linear line. 
That's the, why it's called a line, a cue. This happened to me for this dynamite that's coming up in a couple of weeks when I was buying those tickets, same thing. And this is not user error. We gotta, we gotta refine the way that we're selling tickets. Um, it should not work this way. Um, so that's my recommendation is fix the way that we sell tickets. And I know I'm an old man screaming at clouds right now and this rant isn't going to solve anything, but I just needed to get that off my chest and also to humble brag that I bought tickets to double or nothing. Come see your boy in Vegas. If you're going to be there. All right, guys, that's it for today. It is like half to midnight and I have got to get some sleep. I will catch you guys down the road. Peace.